0: Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. Uh, this is a special edition of the Kick to Kick podcast. Um, as 1949 was the last season that Jock McHale coached uh, or was associated with the Collingwood Football Club in an official capacity, we decided it was uh, well worth talking about in some extended detail. So we invited Glenn McFarlane in uh, to talk to us about Jock McHale. Now, Glenn wrote the book Jock, the story of Collingwood's greatest coach, um, back in, I think it was 2010. This book is still available and a very good read for any football fans out there. Uh, 2011, actually. Um, So we got got Glenn in to talk to us about the life and times of Jock McHale. So without further ado... It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know
1: We'll become such intelligent gentry with every kick-to-kick show, beginning in the time 1870s, right through to the modern day, tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman to hear what they all have to say.
0: Um, i was just going to start by saying welcome to the show. Um, I'm glad we could finally have you after we've tried to get you a few times, um, because we really wanted to talk about Jock McHale's career. We've covered him, you know, we, we've gone from the start and he's, he's been a mainstay. So to actually sit down and just talk about Jock McHale is, is a really good thing to do. So thank you and welcome to the show.
2: Oh, pleasure, Tim. I love what you guys do. So well done and keep up the good work.
0: Thank you. So um, really quickly, we usually ask our guests this, um, what team do you go for and why? And obviously we know you're a Collingwood man. Just <laughs> want to tell us why?
2: Yeah, I had no choice. My mother was, uh, her father played in five premierships for Collingwood, um, played 216 games, every one of them under Jock McHale. His name was Charlie Dibbs, so he was the fullback yeah, yeah. in the four in a row that you guys comprehensively covered from 27 to 30, and so my mother, I never had any choice but to Barrett <laughs> for Collingwood. Uh, she, we, everyone in our family's brainwashed. I think if they weren't, you're out of the household and you have to find a new home, so that's yeah. why I stuck with Collingwood through thick and thin.
0: Yeah, very nice. Um, so, when you were a kid, who was your what number did you have on your back?
2: That's a very good question. I had Billy Pickin uh, when I was a kid on the duffle yep. on, the, on the jumper and the duffel coat. Uh, loved Billy Pickin. Loved the way he went about it. Played well in finals, which can't always say that well for for Collingwood in the seventies and eighties. But then I <laughs> progressed and went to thirty-five. I had to go to pretty yeah, Day. So as a kid, I sort of could just take up leave the five and just take off the two and put the, <laughs> the three there, so it was thirty-five instead of twenty-five.
0: Perfect. And um, best best game you've ever been to.
2: That is a really, really good question. Um, In terms of excitement and me, you know, to to be able to... My first year of being a sports journalist was 1990. And so to be able to go to the 1990 Grand Final, having been uh, almost institutionalised after losing all those Grand Finals um, and being to most of those, 1990 was amazing. But I I actually now rate 2010 Grand Final above 1990 purely for the reason... Yes, it was my second premiership for Barracking for Collingwood, but purely for my kids. My kids were there. And, and my mother my mother it was an extraordinary story my mother yeah, at that yep. stage was um, you know quite elderly in, in that sense and yep. I was able to get her a ticket and my kids a ticket and it was the first grand final she'd been to since 1935 Whoa. since she went as a kid since she went as a kid to see her uh, her father play in the 1935 grand final which she was just about yep. four at the time so she went from 1935 all the way through to 2010 wow that's incredible um, and she was there for the draw yep. as well yeah it's an amazing story
0: yeah. Um, awesome, um, I'm glad you mentioned your grandfather Because we just wanted to talk about Charlie Dibbs for a little bit um, What was it like growing up With stories of you know the machine Team and and that whole era
2: Yeah it's quite amazing Like to grow up with that and you always Hope you got someone in your family who, Who'd done something pretty special and he Certainly had, he died uh, Long before I was born, he died in 1960 So he was only 55 when he died So yeah. I was nine years off being born Then so basically I grew up with the family stories more so than Charlie so I never met him Um, but what I did do uh, I wanted to find out about him Uh, I was really lucky enough to you know to write to a number of his teammates who were still alive at the time I think I started doing that when I was about 12 or 13 and wanted to uh, find out more about Charlie so I wrote to a whole lot of people um, including the great Harry Collier Harold Rumney, Jack Regan Frank Murphy Albert Collier Jack Beveridge all of those guys they were amazing in giving me some incredible letters that I've still got detailing their lives and back then I think wow. I was, it was sort of ranged between when I was 12 and 15 yeah. or 16 and I said I was going to one day write a book on the machine um and I unfortunately yeah. sadly wasn't able to do it in their lifetimes but fortunately with my great co-author and you guys have had him on, yeah, he's great who's a superstar absolute superstar um he he's a ripper he uh he was able to help yeah. me and we did it together in 2005 and it was great for the families it was great for my family but it was also. Great for the families uh, of the players that played through that amazing era. Yeah, it's a
0: very comprehensive book. You guys did really well there. I really enjoyed that one.
2: Thank you. It was. It's probably one of my favorites. Yeah.
0: Um, and and I've, I've got a note here that Harry Collier presented you with your under-17s jumper. Is that uh, uh, that's true?
2: That is true. That's probably actually one of the highlights of my life, actually, because Harry was a, a legend uh, in my mind. Um, I went to school with uh, with his uh, grandsons, and I still keep in contact with one of his grandsons at the moment. And my mum used to take me down as a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid to Harry's place um, with his lovely wife, Verna, and he was the most accommodating guy you would ever meet, like so nice. And I, I wasn't blessed with talent yeah. or anything like that. I played with Kingsbury and Bundura. Um, but <laughs> not, the, one of the highlights of my life was getting invited down to Collingwood, yeah. the, the Harry Collier squad in the under-17s, and spent time, yeah, the old Harry Collier squad, and in the old uh, social club. <laughs> one night we all got invited and um and harry presented me with my jumper which i've still got uh doesn't fit me now of course but um he uh he presented me with my jumper and he actually told a little story about my grandfather and and what an important part he was to that particular side and i wish i had that recorded because uh, that would have been amazing but i wasn't thinking about that then but it was probably one of the highlights of my life my career didn't go very far <laughs> um but uh to, to get that from harry was uh, quite amazing
0: yeah so so obviously um obviously this all led to you writing the book like this is this all kind of seems to be building up to you writing this
2: yeah yeah it did and I wanted to from the time I was a little kid I was always interested like you guys fascinated by footy history and and my old man used to he played for Brunswick and Captain Brunswick and and he used to write down trivia questions for me about and i would go off and I'd research the. which which was pretty hard back then to go and do that there weren't too many footy history books or or decent ones at the time (laughs) Um, and so I always said to myself I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, write a yep. book one day and as I said about Michael Roberts Michael contacted me out of the blue it was a cold call he actually contacted my mother out of the blue because he'd heard he contacted me through my mother um because he'd heard that uh, we were related to to Charlie Dibbs and he wanted information for his um a century of the best and I, was, I think I was 21 when he was researching yep. that and I said to myself how could it be one day to not only yep. do a book and was able to do it with Michael and um, that, that machine book it was one of the you know highlights of my life to be able to do that and tell the stories of not just the superstars, but, but also of the, the lesser known guys in that particular team as well. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and that you've done a really good uh, job of that. Um, Charlie, welcome. Charlie, Glenn, Glenn, uh, Charlie.
3: Glenn how are you? Hi hey, Charlie. Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Lovely to see you. Sorry I was a bit late. Of
2: Thank you. Technical for, issues.
3: Not at all. Thanks for having me. No, it's it's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> uh, yeah, lovely to speak to, uh, to someone that I'm not usually talking to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> mate, it's good to speak to anyone in this day and age, yeah, I
0: think, isn't it? Um, uh, we're locked down in the line. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, so, Glenn, what was the process like? It must have... How, how how many years and what was how many hours in the library and how, how long on Trove?
2: Uh, are you talking about machine or jock in, in that sense
0: oh sorry no no no, jock sorry I, that, so once you did the machine yep. book is that then you moved on yeah
2: to jock so basically what happened was i jock was an extension of the machine in the sense that um, there was such a, a great story to tell He he's sort of like a bit of a ghost of coaching i think jeff slattery once described him as the ghost of coaching he's this man with this extraordinary record but we don't know much about him we never really knew much about his family or or, or what he was actually like, other than that he was this bloke with a with a hat on on the on the on the, you know the side of the ground and you know the tie and whatever else. So I, I wanted to try and put some uh, sinew on the bones, if you like, of, of his life. And by God, it was hard. It was really difficult because there's um he, you know he had one living child still around <laughs> um, uh, when I first started the process, but unfortunately jock junior died um lived to a great age but i, I actually got to spend some time with jock junior's uh, wife she was terrific june um and to speak to so many of his teammates sorry his teammates i'm going too far if he's of the men that he'd actually coach his teammates would be would have been 150 i reckon at that time uh, but to speak to some of the um the guys who who even some of the guys who didn't play a lot under him but played a little bit under him like a guy called uh, bernie yeah. shannon who played late in jock's career and he's in a a famous old photograph with Jock uh, Victoria Park as well. And it, I spent a lot of time on Trove. I um, uh, had amazing help from people like Jeff Slattery, who believed in the book, yep. uh, and Michael Roberts, who's outstanding. And a guy mm-hmm. called you guys would well know well, truly Russell Holmes. Oh, yeah. who has yep. got unbelievably one of the best football libraries. And I don't just mean books. I mean, sh-
0: you mean his shed? Papers.
2: His garage? Oh, his garage is just a, a treasure yeah. trove. <laughs> Looks a little bit like my study, um, But yeah, so it took a long time. Yeah. I think I missed about three or four. I think I missed three or four, maybe even five deadlines that Jeff Slattery suggested that I needed to uh, to do because um, I was trying to obviously keep my job at the Herald Sun. Yeah. But we got there in the end, and I think it was really fitting that yeah, it course. came out in around 2011. Mick Malthouse was able to help launch the book at the Collingwood Footy Club, and um, and uh, to, do, to have him do that, the man who would eventually take over from the number of games, that was pretty special. Um, but, yeah, I hope I did a good job. It's a decade, it's 10 years next year that it, that it actually came out. Wow.
3: Yeah, incredible. <laughs> like you. can
2: imagine it would just, I mean, with such no, a long it definitely stands uh,
3: career, both playing and coaching, that the, the history and the, and the info you'd get would just keep on, it'd be a
2: wormhole. Yeah, it was. And particularly, I've met some, I mean, amazing people through it, guys who you obviously coach, but family members and, and, and you know, people for, who associated with But also, when I say family members, i contacting people from, from Emlar in Ireland where his family, his mum and dad came from Emlar, Um, They had a couple of family tragedies uh, that, you know, pretty much Jock's life. There's a whole lot of family tragedies behind it. And that was one of the things that actually stood out to me as much as anything. And to be able to talk to people on the other side of the world, um, and the McHale name is very famous in Um, MLAR. They're they're actually a very well-known family over there. Um, Had no idea really about uh, about Jock, but there's a great story. And even in the First World War, Jock's brother um, went to the war and... um, uh, mikhail walked through the streets of emla trying to find relatives from years and years ago and i think just the beauty of those little stories i think are great i love stories behind the stories of, of you know what's going on absolutely that's what sort of brings history alive doesn't it the anecdotes yeah, yeah. that's what i love I'm, i love the <laughs> anecdotes and, and i'm really fortunate michael roberts who i've worked with a lot he's he's of the same ilk he loves the the little yeah. anecdote here and there the quirky little thing that um might not make a newspaper but yeah uh, but fortunately back then they, a lot of them did make newspapers and Trove, I was able to track down um, through Trove. You know, Jock's father was a policeman in the New South Wales Police Force, um, and I was able to find out some cases that he worked on. Oh, a wow. particular murder that, yeah, a particular murder that um, that yeah. in, in I think it was in Worry Older, but it was up that way in New South Wales. Um, that he he worked on the case, and shortly after, the family decided to move to Melbourne. So I've always wondered whether you know Jock <laughs> uh, Jock's father, being John, um, seeing that and being a part of that Wild West, if you like, as it was back at, out back. New South Wales, Jock's father thought, we've got to go somewhere else, <laughs> yeah. and they went to Victoria anyway. Changed the course of football. Yeah,
3: amazing. Amazing. Um, so uh, speaking of that history, obviously um, Collingwood has such a rich history, and we know that Eddie um, loves the history of the club. Uh, has, um, have they sort of embraced <laughs> you guys in terms of looking for this history? Yeah. Have they um, been part of your help researching
2: this? yeah absolutely the club's been extraordinary ed as you know um there's not a lot about collingwood past or present that ed doesn't know (laughs) He, he keeps abreast of everything um and he's been outstanding in terms of um assistance and guidance in in whatever direction that michael and i have taken um michael is the is the spiritual godfather of Collingwood history in a lot of ways. I've seen that. He's only a young guy. Um, but I like to ha- think that I sort of helped out a little bit and tell a few stories. Um, we did a project not that long ago about every, uh, just for the online, the Collingwood Forever. We helped set up this thing called Collingwood Forever, which is associated with um, the club website. And uh, we were able to track down every World War One digger who, who, fought, um, who played for Collingwood, uh, either amazing. before or after, um, which was terrific to do, and a lot of that was true. But the one thing I need to give a shout-out to is the people at the Collingwood Archives Committee. Um, I've got an absolutely dedicated team um, at the Collingwood Archives Committee who have become friends of mine in a a, a strange way Um, I don't see them that often I get an invitation to their Christmas party every year and I tell you it's a bloody good Christmas party (laughs) to go to Um, but they they give their time and effort they give their time and effort um, and what they do is they um, they have preserved the history of Collingwood Um, Collingwood's got one of the great records of, of its history and its past of any club uh, and I'm not sure they probably took it seriously enough um, early doors, but they certainly do now, and they do an amazing <laughs> job. I just wish they had a museum. Maybe that's going to happen at some stage soon. It's a, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Like speaking to a few historians
3: at different clubs is at different periods in their time, they didn't sort of see the value in holding on to things which we now would see as irreplaceable and such a rich part of, part of yeah. the history of the club, but some of
2: them didn't re- recognise it at the time. Yeah, it's bizarre. And I think Collingwood, you probably yeah. think of the 80s with, where Collingwood was trying to shed some of their history. Yeah. And, and it, thankfully, it's turned full circle. I, I still, as a hoarder myself, I it pains me to see people throw things away. My mother used to always tell the story. My grandfather had played in two Victorian teams, um, played twice for Victoria. He had a Victorian <laughs> jumper that he used to paint in outside the house and would paint the outside of the house with the Victorian jumper. What I wouldn't give to turn back time now and just say, please wear another shirt, <laughs> yeah. wear another jumper, wear whatever and just keep it and I'm lucky we kept a lot of stuff that Victorian jumper it would never it would never be sold or anything like that but that would be yeah, oh, would that yeah be. amazing oh.
0: um, so let's get to Jock's first season so 1912 the Titanic I think you talked about the Titanic in the book that's yeah. how long ago it was um, but it was the first year Collingwood had actually missed the finals and you know the club didn't have the best season how was he or how, how could they convince why do they keep him on past that first season
2: It's an interesting one. I mean, he'd been at the club since 1903, so they knew what sort of qualities Jock had, and I think the thing that probably gets um, forgotten about in his story is that he was a bloody good player himself, Mm. Jock. Like, he played, um, you know, 261 games, I think, for memory, which was one more than Nathan Buckley played at Collingwood. Um, uh, At Collingwood, He obviously played more at Brisbane, uh, Nathan Buckley, but, so, and and you talk about the the Titanic, the club even referred to at the end of that year in their annual review, talking about a disastrous season, and his first his first game was a couple of weeks after the Titanic went down, and was very apt for in a lot of ways. Um, but they knew what sort of person he was. Um, they also, I mean, the club. If you look at it back then, the club had a, a, a yeah. you know, George Angus was an a, exceptional player and leader, and he'd left the club at that stage. Um, there were a couple of other players that left as well. Dick Lee had that ongoing uh, knee mm, issue, yeah. and he, yeah, and so he played, I think, for memory one game that year. So you're losing Dick, one of your Dickie best knee. players, even yeah. though he's still quite young then, Dick. Um, so they had a number of um, they had a number of uh, issues as well, but they knew what sort of person Jock was. And they, don't, don't get me wrong, there was a I found it earlier. Um, there was a, in the footy record after about three games, and they lost their first three games that season. There was talk of so called supporters. Yeah, and there was there was talk of so called supporters talking about a reform group, blaming the management. Yeah, their worst um, Blaming ever. everyone else. The coach didn't get a mention, but I'm sure there was pressure on Jock. And in that round four game, so he lost the. The first three games that round four game he gave uh what a number of people said was one of the early great motivational speeches on the thursday night before they played carlton he got up and i've got the thing there i'm trying to remember exactly what i was able to find um his line is certainly not rocket science but the line was that it sort of gives a hint to the pressure that he was feeling at the time now lads for the club's sake for your own sake and for my sake go out and win against carlton (laughs) so that's all he said in this big motivation but it was the start of his great oratory in, in a sense and that week against Carlton um, the scoreboard at the end of the game said it was a draw uh, and back then it wasn't until 1927 <laughs> I think it was when um, the, the, the goal umpires would wave the flag if it was the right score on the scoreboard so everyone walked off the ground thinking Carlton had won oh uh, sorry that had been a draw you get back in the rooms and they yeah. realised that the umpires have figured Collingwood have won by point so Jock's breathing a pretty big sigh of relief at this stage.
3: <laughs> It's an, yeah, it's so interesting you bring that up. It is really easy to yeah, forget what a, a career he had yeah. as, a, as a player, because you know it's 38 years later that you sort of <laughs> you forgetting yep. that he's a coach. So yeah, they <laughs> did obviously already have that history with him as well. They're,
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
3: the I mean, you talk of the big names of that era, and you mentioned Dick Lee there as well. But the big names off the field of Collingwood in that era are Jock and then John Wren, of course. So. Um, what was what was their relationship like? What what sort of what did you find out about about that? Were they, did they already have a strong relationship from when he was a player, or did it did it grow as, as time went on?
2: It certainly uh, grew as time went on, and Jock would have known a fair bit about John Wren well and truly before <laughs> uh, you know well and truly before he became a coach. Um, it's quite funny. Another little story I was able to find from Bob Rush. Um, Bob Rush went to CBC Parade College, which was in Victoria Parade. Uh, as did Jock. Jock went there as well. And, and Bob Rush used to say a lot of the kids there um, later on in their schooling would wander across and walk down the road and, and go yeah. down to uh, Johnston Street and would try and lose a win, a win or lose a little bit of money at Wren's Tote. So I've often wondered whether whether Jock was one of those kids that uh, that wandered <laughs> down um, and went to Wren's Tote. The their relationship, yeah, really early in the piece, that would be. So I think the, the Tote closed in about 1906. Um, it opened in 1893 now jock wasn't going to cbc parade then i think he went to cbc parade in about 1895 1896 around that sort of bracket um so but it certainly is a possibility because bob rush said a lot of the kids used to go down there and yeah. bob obviously <laughs> i think was um the year ahead of jock for memory and he always used to say jock wasn't a great player back then oh, that made cool. himself a great player. So I think the relationship between wren um, and and McHale certainly became very tight uh, in the years, probably more so after the First World War. Um, even not in the early years of his coaching, Wren, for whatever reason, and there's a couple of different reasons that Wren wasn't as connected to the club for a period of time, okay. and then got back involved heavily after or round about the the start of the First World War. And you often see the stories about how the players would, you know, um, you know, if anything needed to be done, John Wren was there to try and assist and. Um, you know i am not sure whether some of its old oh, wives tales but but certainly uh <laughs> no. he used to like the forward so my grandfather never really got much of a look in you know, i think <laughs> you can imagine over a 100 years the uh, the mustard's been
3: sort of put on a fair few of these stories i imagine
2: yep. <laughs> yeah absolutely but i mean i'm sure i have absolutely no doubt that um that ren played a role oh, yeah. Um, it's just how big a role he actually played um uh in in you know if 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 it had have been people talk about ren's role and if it had been Ren completely running everything uh, and and paying out money, we wouldn't have had the the equal salary cap that Colling players had. The yeah. equal salary that they got, they would have we, they wouldn't have lost all the players that they uh, <laughs> that they lost over the years. Yeah. It probably cost them a few premierships as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, And then and then for the fact that Ren and Mikhail both died within weeks yeah. of each other is incredible,
2: extraordinary, isn't it? That uh, that they die so close they together. Bo- um, because I mean. You know, if you look at... Ren has a heart attack at that 1953 Grand Final. It, it, you know, feels his chest feeling uh, and goes on and lives lives for a month. Jock is dead within, you know, basically a week. The Collingwood players were on their end-of-season trip. For memory, I'm trying to think it was Tasmania. I'm not 100% right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For memory, yep. uh, they were in, in Tasmania, Tasmania when they found yeah, the yeah, news that Jock had passed yep. away. And, and it was quite sudden um, in, in that sense. But these two guys that are that have, you know, one's the public face in a lot of ways of Collingwood, and one's the the hidden uh, private face of Collingwood in a lot of ways. To die so closely connected um, in in a a time is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah, Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, So getting back to, I guess, the early days and and when Jock was still fairly fresh-faced, look, he was a very strong wheeled character. And uh, did this mean he controlled all aspects of the club, including local recruiting? And also, why was it so
2: important for him that all players get paid the same?
0: Uh, he was very much of that
2: ilk and would be throughout his career about everyone being paid the same which is interesting because he was one of the um, the early guys uh, who was pushing for the for the payment of players um, i found a few uh, meetings that uh, <laughs> that he attended and was on a committee um, chasing money for players in 1911 uh, just leading into the 1911 season so Um, he he was very strong on players, should be paid, but not paid too much. And they should be paid on a consistent basis. He felt that that was the best thing for the team. The egalitarian sort of style of that. Um, And that lasted at Collingwood for pretty much through his entire coaching career. Um, As far as the recruiting goes, they didn't need to worry too much about recruiting. Every kid in the district wanted to play for Collingwood back then. (laughs) Oh God! If that was the case now, it would be so good, wouldn't it? Um, so he would have, you know, 120 kids to yeah. to to whittle down to however many um, uh, that that made the, the grade. And something I didn't always get it right. That was generally the you know the secretary's job to organise the invitations and stuff like that. I know Harold Rumney. Uh, sorry, Harold, Harry Collier once told the story that he didn't get the the original invitation that came to to him. His cousin Harold Collier got the invitation. The only thing is Harold couldn't play and Harry could, so they just got the wrong address of the Gollies <laughs> there as well. So I often wonder, did we nearly lose one of the greats of all time?
3: Incredible. Um, so, it, I mean, leading <laughs> on to, to that, with that, with that, with that sort of an egalitarian stance. Almost. Um, it, it, it's an interesting contradiction, though, because when you look at uh, his coaching throughout, throughout his career, um, he did he had this idea that you know we were one team and everyone played their part but then he had these incredible stars as well that he sort of almost built a team around like you look at gordon coventry as you mentioned dick lee near the beginning mainly these forwards um did 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 you find that contradictory uh, as well or um... um a little i i do
2: uh, they, there was a, absolutely a reliance on on those star forwards in that as well but um i look at it and think gordon coventry struggled in his early. Early period, Dick Lee was in and out. I, I think they had just amazing talent, and I think he, he hated the term machine, which I've found fascinating. Oh, really? Yeah, that um, is you know, fascinating. The, yeah, he was not a fan of the because he felt that that um, was too rigid, um, too stuck to a plan. wasn't He was really not a fan of the of the term machine, which is the great irony is that he's remembered for for being the man who managed the machine. Yeah. Um, but he was he was certainly a little bit reticent. To, he never called them the machine. Um, he thought that across the board. That they had talent across the board. And I think they did have oh, yeah. extraordinary talent. I think some of these guys probably, and I think through the research <laughs> of the machine and some of these guys don't get the credit um, that they yeah. probably deserve in terms of, I mean, the Colliers and the Coventry's, Coventries do. And one day I said to Michael, I'd love to write a book on the four brothers, the four of them, um, yeah. you know, they're not brothers, the two brothers and the two brothers, the four together. It'd be a great book on their lives because they had fascinating lives, but gee, there were some good players in that bracket. i look at, you know, Jack Beveridge, Luke Beveridge's grandfather, was an exceptional player. Howard Romney was an exceptional player. Albert Collier, he's in a discussion for the greatest Collingwood player of all time. I have absolutely no doubt about that. My grandfather used to always say, not to me because I wasn't around, yeah. but to our, my my dad, who was his uh, son-in-law, he would always say, whenever we're in trouble, we would say, kick the ball to Sidder, kick the ball to Sidder, kick the ball yeah. to Sid Coventry. Sid was an amazing leader. So, I think across the board, Bob Makeham, nobody's ever heard of Bob yeah. Makeham. You know, really good players that. But yeah. Frank Murphy was an exceptional player. I mean, and, and Billy Libbis, you look at Billy Libbis in that early period of the machine, he's playing first yeah. rover, not Harry Collier. So you look at that and you think, wow, that's extraordinary. So I, I think, no doubt, that there was an absolute star quality in that team. Uh, and, and Dick Lee was obviously a star in the, in the years leading into that. But they had a really good you know, cross-section of stars and talent in that team as well. Yeah.
0: Do you think yeah. those players like the Coventries and the Colliers would have been held in such high regard if they were on other teams and didn't and weren't associated with the, the Collingwood
2: fourpeat, the machine? I actually think they would because I think they were, all four of them were exceptional. Um, but, you know, you look at it, Gordon, Gordon nearly didn't make it. That's the extraordinary story about Gordon. Sid Sid was at St Kilda for a period of time. Um, you know, it was assigned to play with St Kilda. So you look at the little swings and roundabouts. You know, Harry Collier got the wrong... The wrong. He didn't get the the letter from the club. <laughs> His cousin got it. So, and I look at little things like that. But I, I think they would have, because I think they are outstanding. Yeah. Those four. I um, I push up for for the Colliers and Coventries all the time, probably because they wore black and white. And uh, but there's just that mystique about them as well. I think they would have. Think they would have been a success yeah. anywhere. I think. I mean, if you talk to anyone about Albert Collier, uh, and he's a bit of a favourite of mine. If he doesn't go to Tasmania. The two seasons which is an extraordinary story in itself after that four Isn't in a row it? yeah so he, he came back with, he came back with battered knees and the knees he's he, he probably probably you know he's still fantastic in those mid-30s period as well but no i think they would have been outstanding at any particular club but that was particularly suited to the, the systematic approach that jock had as well
0: it must have annoyed you um sorry to interrupt you, Charlie, no. because i know you're about to ask a question but in, in that first lockdown period we had and all the media seemed to be doing best of lists yep. all the time there was very rarely any mention of anything pre-world war ii
2: yeah it's hard isn't it like it is and, and i can understand why people do it um and and i do it as well sometimes but we're quick to remember what's happened only recently we really are and um my memory for footy goes back a fair way but nowhere and i don't blame anyone in that sense but you're right I think it's in that period where you look back and some of these players, and I think the AFL Hall of Fame, the Australian Football Hall of Fame, sorry, needs to maybe look at honouring the past a little bit better. We honour the present or the recently retired. And it's something that I've spoken to them and on a number of occasions. Yeah. Um, and I know that it's other, other people have pushed that as well, that I, I think we need to probably put, yeah. I'm, I'm a man of the 20s and 30s. That sounds bad for a person. <laughs> but I love yeah. looking back at footy in that period. It was such an exciting brand of footy um and whatever but i think sometimes the early brackets of the footy do not get the credit uh that they probably should
3: absolutely and we i mean we talk about that all the time as well how uh, you know before color television no one's interested in what was going on basically exactly um where you know and you're right all these guys who we've talked about the colliers i mean people know gordon coventry because he's he's still you know the records but they're those guys just sort of disappear into the ether because there's no footage of it you can't you know you can't watch it happening so when there's not the visual it's very easy for it to disappear from from view and it's it's such a shame because the stories are phenomenal yeah
2: oh and i think that the 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 great stories the color of stories around that particular time are amazing. And you look back at, you know, um, 19, 1928, Collingwood almost go on strike in the middle of a game. Yeah. Sid Coventry stops that. Um, so many, and, and I think that's what we're able to find. And you guys have done the same. The little stories behind oh, the stories yeah. um, from the early years of football, I think I think they just make for breathtaking reading sometimes.
3: Absolutely. And it, yeah. and it also just adds so much to
2: uh, your enjoyment of,
3: of today's game oh, as well. Because yeah. you look at what Absolutely. it's become and you're like, yep. how is it possible that it's now this when it, it was, you know, what it was. It's phenomenal. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's bizarre. My grandfather didn't get paid a lot to play football and that, but he would have done it for free anyway. He used to stitch the Sharons during the week, and those same Sharons were probably, he was trying to stop them to go through the goals at the other end on the weekend. <laughs> it was, he worked in a Sharon factory. Some of these guys, you know, lived pretty tough lives, um, really difficult lives in, in, in what they did, particularly through the Depression. Um, and the, the Depression hit Collingwood a lot earlier than it hit other yeah. suburbs in, I know, I know the crash was in October mm. 29 when Collingwood already won those three flags but if you listen to to Harry Collier and to a degree some of the guys that wrote to me, wrote back to me when I was young, um, how hard it was growing up in Collingwood in those years and one of the very, you know, few things I actually had was to be able to go to training on the whatever nights and usually the Tuesday and the Thursday and to go to the footy on the weekend, that was their day. Yeah. It was, that was their week rolled into one. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah. So you were
3: talking about, you know, how with the Colliers and the Coventries, how the, the systems that Jock had in place uh, helped them to, you know, really highlight how phenomenal they were and how it helped them build them up. But also those systems um, ended up co- costing them a few flags. Um, do you think, do you think um, Jock's faith in his,
2: in his systems uh, ultimately may have cost him his job in the end? Uh, potentially. Um, and there's conjecture about how he lost his job and how he, you know, potentially whether he walked away or whether, yeah. you know, he was, his time had run out. I think if you spoke to anyone um, who played under him in the 1940s, um, he probably yeah. should have ended. At the end of that 39 year, when they lost the grand final to Melbourne, um, after his seconds coach, Huey Thomas, had been moved on, yeah. put a hex on Collingwood, yeah. um, put a famous hex on Collingwood. Um, and so potentially that should have been the end of Jock. Um, but if you. I don't want to dismiss him too much because Collingwood actually yeah. put a fair bit into the Second World War. They had a lot of guys represent the club at war. So the club was pretty much bereft of talent mm. for a number of those war years. Um, but it was the one year, the one decade that, that Collingwood hasn't played in a grand final. They yeah. came pretty close. They probably should have played in the 45 grand yeah. final.
0: Yeah, um, no, we, we're very again, aware of that. if you talk that. to
2: anyone at that time, Jock's team's ran out of steam in the second half. You go back and look at the stats. in, late in games. The team, yeah, the team wasn't uh, didn't run out games. And, and you, you had a coach who at the end of it was 68 years of age or the best part of 68 years of age. Um, I, I, I think his systems were fantastic for the time. Um, but, it, it, you know, in the end, in that last game that he coached um, in 1949, he was coaching against a guy who was half yeah. his age. Um, and that, Dick yeah. Reynolds, and that uh, probably says it a little bit. Uh, but it's it's really yeah. hard to get rid of a Colossus. We saw that with Kevin Sheedy. We've seen it to a degree with Mick Malthouse as well. Yeah. When you get rid of a colossus, and this guy was a colossus. you think Kevin Sheedy, this guy, for what he meant to that one footy club, was was monumental to Collingwood? So, so I think he, yeah, gee, it's he, he did coach eight premierships. So, I, I, you know, I, I you cop that every day of the week. I'd, I'd take another one for Collingwood <laughs> for the rest of my life. The way we're going, to <laughs> the
0: the um, yeah. But we we were talking about the control Jock had, and the. the there's people he did push out, like Huey Thomas, yeah, uh, Dan Minogue, yeah. Con McCarthy, Albie Panham Sr., Charlie Tyson. There were people, there were bodies that, that kind of got flung by the wayside.
2: He was pretty ruthless, there's no doubt, uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. And not all of those were his fault, but he was pretty ruthless, certainly the Huey Thomas one. There's a fascinating relationship, and I had a good chat to Huey's son uh, for the book, um, and um, yeah. he said his dad was just distraught because they, they they, you know, he was the, the district coach, as it was back then, the Collingwood Seconds coach. And so basically, yeah. they didn't talk other than selection. Jock would say, I need a wingman, I need a forward, I need a whatever, and Hughie would throw up a name. That was about the only connection they really had. They, oh. they were not tight, they didn't like each other a lot. Jock was pretty jealous of any sort of um, credit that the players gave Hughie for... Jock didn't train skills. He, he felt like if you were playing for Collingwood Ones, you should have the skills already. Yep. So if you haven't got them, too bad. We'll find another one who has. Whereas Huey was a person that would try and um, you know try and teach the players uh, and and trying to hone those skills as well. Um, so if you look at that, that was quite extraordinary that those two guys just didn't get on. Um, the, the Tyson one's a fascinating one. I still Tyson obviously was the captain in the 1926 grand final. Uh, he um, he was going to captain Collingwood that year, and then a couple of weeks before the, the season, just just prior to his first game, he has moved on. And under under what was unfairly, from what we understand, unfairly suggested that he yeah, um, may have taken money to play Paulie in, in in the previous year's grand final against Melbourne. There's no evidence at all of that. In fact, the evidence points to Jock making a couple of bad tactical decisions relating to Huey, relating to to, to Charlie. Mm-hmm. Sorry, rel- relating to Charlie in that grand final. Um, and the club decided we've got another captain in the wings who's going to be better than Charlie Tyson, we've got Sid Coventry, Mm -hmm. we know how good he's going to be so they they callously moved him on in the end you look at it, they win four premierships in a row it's probably the right decision but gee it was a tough decision because poor Charlie Tyson had to deal with that stigma pretty much for the rest of his life and having spoken to some of the the players they didn't believe, and, and Richard Stresky did some fantastic work on that in Kilkulyn. Yeah, true. The players didn't believe that he oh, that he Bruce played is. dead in that grand final. Yeah, that's
3: right. That that was the story about him driving around in a new car just after losing the grand final, wasn't it? Was it the yeah. Fiat?
2: I'm trying to remember. If it was a Fiat, but it was something like something that. Something like that. So some it was some a very flashy car. new car, and it just
3: yeah, that yeah. that was basically the, the nail yeah. in the coffin.
2: Absolutely, yeah. and, and he obviously wrote a letter to the newspaper saying this is the, this is just not true, yeah. and please, people, stop. So you've got no support Something from Colin like that. in that sense. So that's the point that I make, that this, you know, Jock was pretty ruthless. The club was absolutely <laughs> ruthless. They wanted to win premierships. Um, I wouldn't say by any means, because there's no real evidence of other skullduggery, no. even though there would have been. But they were pretty ruthless. And, and, and I suppose a lot of the other players that you mentioned that were moved on or, or left, um, you know, Dan and I had a, had a few grievances about how a couple of his friends were treated while he was off at war, yeah. um, uh, which Michael Roberts sort of looked heavily into. And a few of the other guys, um, he, he had falling outs with people. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Billy Libis went to Melbourne. Other guys went to, to other situations. Um, but, yeah, that was the way Jock was. He, he called a spade a spade. And if he didn't like you, you're in a bit of trouble. Yeah. It's I the the Huey the Huey Thomas stuff though is, is is fascinating.
3: Do you think there was a little yeah. bit of uh self-preservation in it for him? Maybe yeah. worrying that he that Huey was
2: waiting in the wings to take his job. No doubt. Yeah. There was no question about that. Um and, and that's anecdotal evidence, but it's also speaking to Huey's son, and that was that had been passed down. Hugh was under no doubt that um the jock uh was worried about you know, anyone that gave any credit to Huey, and I think um, when Gordon Coventry retired, uh, he did a piece. I think it, I can't remember which newspaper it was for the. I think it was for the Herald or the Sporting Globe or something along those lines. And he did a piece and he gave a little bit of um, a bit of a tick to Huey. And old Jock wasn't happy with that. Oh, Jock was nice. never really happy with uh, with the fact that, uh, that that Huey Thomas got a bit of credit. So it was definitely a bit of professional rivalry there. Yeah. And, um, and then the first I'm sure, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic.
0: And then the first time uh, Huey Thomas, so first time Huey Thomas comes up against. Yeah. Um, Jock McHale, as coach of St Kilda, he beat they they
2: win as well. Mm. Yeah, and I, and, and I think him? um his son um said to me uh his son Harold said to me that it was one of the great days of his life that he was able to. <laughs> and I love that. He, yeah. And I love the fact that that um that he put the, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but he he put a jinx on Collingwood. And and, and Harold said this to me. He said, "Oh, yeah. I he definitely put a jinx on Collingwood." Now I don't believe in any of that stuff, mind you. We did, we did get – there was a lot of drought. But Collingwood <laughs> would obviously lost the grand final in that 39 year and then didn't win another one until 53 in, you know, pretty much um, the last days of Jock McHale's life. Mm. So that jinx did work for a while, didn't it? Yeah.
3: But it's, it's amazing that yeah. the two guys who obviously did have that professional rivalry Absolutely. and didn't get along, the fact that they worked together for that time really brought out the best. You know, if Huey's there giving these guys the skills, as, as everyone's said, and then Jock's putting the systems in place –
2: and a brilliant tactical coach. It it worked perfectly together for as long as it could, obviously. Yeah, it did. And that's the bizarre thing that that this actually worked. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of communication, but he knew that, and I think he knew, Jock, that that Hughie knew what he was doing in a lot of sense. Um, Absolutely knew what he was doing. Um, I remember the great story that Bruce Andrew was playing full forward in the the district team uh, before his first game, which I think was 28. Um, So he's playing full forward in that team. And Jock went over to Huey and said, I need your fastest bloke to play on the wing. And Huey said, well, I haven't really got anyone there, but I've got this guy that plays at full forward, uh, Andrew. Andrew, uh, he's a goal kicker, but he's fast. Jock goes, have oh, Abby, bang. So he took him, and Bruce Andrew goes on to a great career at Collingwood. And um, just from that, they had that little communication. Amazing. Uh, and it worked out. So I don't know how it worked, that relationship, but it worked for a long period yeah, of time. Yeah, amazing now um one thing that i
3: was particularly fascinated with at the time and the seasons where we we were talking about it was when jock junior started playing for collingwood so the uh, we we had this thought and i well i did that i mean jock being as you said so stoic and didn't sort of give much away that it was probably the hardest job he ever had getting a shot in that team because his dad i can't imagine i reckon his dad would have been his toughest critic it was was no doubt
2: no no doubt and yeah absolutely it's a really good point um and I suppose the dynamic uh, of it was that um, uh, I, I remember speaking to June, his uh, Jock Junior's uh, widow, and, and she, and, and Jock uh, Junior did say this as well. He said his dad did it so much more tough than he did. Like you would think that the son coming through would do it tough because the dad was the coach. The dad was pretty. He didn't want Jock to play. He didn't want Jock Junior to play. He Jock Junior had, had a suffered a very serious uh, injury playing football in his in his teens. Oh, really? um, and when I say serious, very, very serious. He was never meant to play football again. Uh, it was meant to be all over. And just harking back around that sort of period, um, Jock had lost a daughter uh, in 1934 yeah. um, who, who, was, who was, you know, the bright spark of his life. And he never really, never quite recovered after that, having lost another child as a five-year-old back in 1919. So Jock had had this tragedy. So he doesn't want his son playing football, getting injured, potentially dying. So Jock um, Jock Jr. was playing in the in the you know, having had already suffered the injury, he was playing um, park footy with some mates and Jock Senior saw him and he gave him the scowl, gave him the bad look and he said, well, you need to get this out of your system, get it out of your system now. So he came down to Collingwood, um, was terrific in the, in the seconds. I think Jock was a bit reluctant to play, but played him. And, and while Jock Junior said that he wasn't a great player and didn't have the courage that he perhaps would have if he hadn't had that really serious in, internal injuries that he actually got, he ended up being a really serviceable player <laughs> for Collingwood at that time. The story I love is Jack Dyer. Are you guys aware of the, the story with Jack Dyer and Jock Jr.? No, well, no, I don't think I am. Yeah, yes. it's a cracker. It's a cracker. Um, so basically, 1944, um, it's Jock Jr.'s best year. Um, and he gets invited to what's going to end up being his future brother-in-law's um, wedding. And back then, they'd do the weddings early on a Saturday morning, um, and they'd have a little wedding on the Saturday morning. So he's meant to play in the Seniors in the afternoon against Richmond. Jock Senior cracks it and said, "You're not going yeah. to the wedding." He was yeah, worried yeah. about him having a drink. Now he didn't have a drink, as we understand it. His widow told told me <laughs> didn't have a drink, but um, got to the game. He was in an angry mood because his his father had given him a, an absolute roasting about going to the wedding before the footy match. Um, so he turns out, and Jack Dyer hates Jock McHale. Hated Jock McHale. Wanted, he said, oh, "I would have loved to have belted Jock McHale." I <laughs> loved to have... So you can't do that to the coach who's sitting on the boundary line, who's you know heading towards. He's in his 60s, but you can do it to his son. So Jack Dyer gave uh, Jock Jr. a belting, but Jock Jr., angry already, fought back, and they both got four weeks suspension after belting on with each other. And for the book, I tracked down, I don't even know how I did it, I tracked down the boundary umpire who reported both of them and had a a brief chat to him. He said, Dyer started it, but Jock Jr. gave as much as he got, and they both got (laughs) four weeks. Classic story. That's
0: great. (laughs) Um, So moving towards the end of his career, Um, coached all of 1949 and then by October you said in the book he'd he'd made up his mind he was going to retire but the board made him uh, keep that a secret and they didn't announce they announced him as coach actually for 1950 and then only weeks out from the season they announced that it was he was retiring and there was going to be a replacement was that part of the reason the club was thrown into disarray? Yeah absolutely and it was
2: was the thinking there and it was total disarray too so if you look at it um, this stable football club And if you ever look back on Jock, he always used to talk about stability in a football club. This amazingly stable football club was thrown into disarray. So 1949, um, he loses his last game uh, against Essendon by 82 points, which is not that bad when the grand finals played because, you know, I think Essendon won by 73 or something along those lines. They had the superstar John Coleman. Um, So Jock walks off that day, the MCG, believing he's probably coached his last game. He's, uh, you know, he's he's getting on by this particular stage. And uh, the club... They always knew, as it was with Kevin Sheedy, they always knew that replacing Jock McHale was always going to be one of the hardest things you're ever going to do. Yeah. So 1950 February 1950, the story comes out about doubt over Jock McHale coaching Collingwood yeah. uh, in the Sun newspaper. Um, the club sees a bit of an issue here because they're trying to they're trying to manufacture a result, and the, the, the key people in that particular Harry Curtis, Frank Ray, Bob Rush, they were trying to manufacture a result that had already that already factored in who they wanted to coach, and they wanted to try and have it smoothly done. Um, so Jock, you know, Jock obviously went along with it. Um, they announced on March 1 that he's going yeah. to coach the club at the annual uh, annual general meeting. But then the sons speak to Jock as well, and he says, oh, I haven't quite made up my mind. But he did He did actually take training, and I think he was genuinely a bit torn. Um, but His his son was about to go overseas, and the family had moved out to Essendon, so it was going to be a bit harder for him to, to get to, you know, a little bit harder for him to get to yeah. Collingwood. I think he realised he was done. He was done. So then, obviously, he announced his retirement um, as close as it is to the start of the season. There's a, you know, Colleen would say, we want a non-playing coach, which effectively ruled out at that stage Fonskine. It would have been a natural successor that the supporters wanted. Um, Fonskine says, well, I won't play then. I'll I'll put my hand up as the non-playing coach. Um, But unbeknownst to anyone at that stage, uh, Harry Curtis had already locked in four years earlier. On a trip to Perth, he'd locked in Bourbon Woods, who was the second coach. By no means a dud. Uh, had played in Premiership sides with Collingwood, was a you know, really good seconds coach. So on the casting vote of Harry Curtis, he gets the job. And while Jock lasted all those years, thirty eight seasons, um, this fell apart in a matter of days. There was a there was a practice match at Victoria Park between the haves and the you know, the probables and the and the, and the possibles. And Irvin Woods coaches his only game an, an intra club sort of practice match. Um, and his boo and there's a riot. This, If you could be there that day, you'd want to be that day, there that day just to see what actually happened. Um, whereas Fonskine was cheered and, and, and he was really yeah. unhappy with the whole thing. Bourbon Woods realised this is a debacle. No one wants me other than the, the board that set me up. And he uh, graciously, unbelievably, might not happen in a day like today, uh, writes a letter to the club and yeah. sends it out to the newspapers and says, I'll step down. Fonskine comes in. Uh, there's a massive board election at Collingwood, which is unusual didn't happen a lot yeah. in those early – it certainly happened after that. but And all of a sudden, um, you know, the three stalwarts that had been there on the management for all those years were gone. And there was a new uh, broom come in and fonts kind. Unbelievably, you could win a premiership three years after that upheaval. But it was a massive upheaval. And people, friendships were broken over that. Absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. Yeah. And, and the players were brought into it as well. Friendships, uh, friendships were broken. Um, you know, it's quite a sad, sad – story that, that it got to that uh, and it's so, certainly sad for a guy like Bourbon Woods like you think the certainty that Collingham supporters had of yeah, having yeah. a coach for 38 years and then you have a coach for you know the best part of 7-8 days it's it's a really yeah it was less actually it was 4 days you're right sorry it was 4 days between the actual appointment and the um, so it's less than a week um, that it actually happens and Full credit to to Bourbon Woods to do what he did. Yeah. To be honest, but um, it was the right call because Kine, who was pretty much coached in the in the manner of old Jock, uh, with a few little changes, um, Ended up being a two-time premiership coach at the club. Oh, was it so,
3: four days? But potentially there, I'm, I'm just thinking maybe there was four a bit days, of a hypothetical. Yeah.
2: No matter who we pick, they're going to be hated. So let's pick sort of a, a a dummy <laughs> yeah. to start with, and then we'll <laughs> give it to the guy who we really wanted to give it to is Fons Kine. Maybe they would have liked to have said that after the fact, but they didn't believe <laughs> that. They they thought that certainly the the Harry Curtis Frank Ray um, connection, yeah. and those guys were those guys have been at the club for 30 yes. years. Uh, the best part of were, were then just cast out almost 30, not quite 25. Um, were cast out, and they had been there through the whole machine period. Um, and and I know that it's sort of as I say, it did it did really have some uh, long lasting <laughs> sort of issues with uh, with people and friendships and the like, but. Thankfully, the club got on with it and Jock stayed a part of it. And I think Jock, <laughs> deep, deep down, wanted Fonskine as well. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't want to be a person that nominated uh, the next coach as well. Yeah, fair enough. I know as, as a Melbourne supporter, I know we wanted Fonskine as well at the time. So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Did you? Yeah. That's an interesting one. There you go. Yeah. For, at the end of 49,
2: when yeah, Checker yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. stepped down, he was the number one choice for the Ds. Well, I'm quite just game. trying to think how that
2: would have changed the course of history in the 1958 Grand Final. That's a yeah. that's a classic. That's I mean, well, you think if, if if he got the job at Melbourne, then would Norm Smith have ever got the job? So it's a very it's a very well, interesting slide. He, he might have then coached Collingwood. Yeah, exactly. so well, if you're looking at the sliding doors of history. Can you imagine? Because he grew up, yeah, absolutely, grew up with it uh, and watched Jock McHale coach from afar, and um, and then unbelievably, <laughs> oh, 40, unbelievably a great record that he had. um, You know, know, I I I think, thought Jock was going to be coach of the team of the century and, and, and and, and picked him on the line. We'll
3: we'll have to have a discussion about that at the end, (laughs) Glenn, because that's something that I find fascinating and I want to, I want to hear your, uh, your opinion on that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like it. But, um, Leading on from that, like, so obviously we've talked about the Maybe. fact that he ended up sort of kind of retiring, <laughs> knowing that it was the end anyway. Yeah, he did. There was a bit of discontent, obviously, growing at the club in those last few years when it had been a, a fair while since the last flag. Do, do you think he saw the end, end coming and, and
2: got ahead of it? Or and do you yeah, think, I he think he, he would did. have wanted um, to stay? Yeah. I think no one wants to be turfed out. I think that situation, and I know that. Having spoken to Gordon Carline, who was around the club at the time and well, who was, you know, had so much to do with Collingwood in that period, he actually felt that there was enough people behind the scenes agitating to get Jock McHale out in the late 40s. In the late 40s. And I think there's probably an element of that, but as, as Essendon found, it's very hard to get rid of somebody who was an institution. Yeah. Um, and Collingwood were by no means a failure. The premierships disappeared in the 1940s, but um, other than that period where the war period where the club was non-competitive, they were pretty competitive in the back half of, uh, of the 40s. And as I say, probably a bit stiff not winning the flag in 45. Certainly stiff not making the grand final. And we're pretty good through most of the other bits there. But um, it was the right time for Jock to go. As I said, maybe the right time might have been 1940. when um, But it was wartime. so you can understand that. And um, he wanted another premiership. Yep. He, he jealously guarded premierships and just desperately wanted another premiership.
0: So what made Jock endure for so long as Collingwood coach?
2: It's a great question, uh, a fascinating question. I, I don't know that maybe that, that success was the key uh, and people just felt like he was the coach. And, um, and he, you know, he could have named his own price to go somewhere else and, and didn't want to. And what he did do is everyone who played under him, uh, everyone who pretty much played under him, got the opportunity to be a coach themselves, yeah. um, whether it be country, whatever. So, and I know that my grandfather did that. He, he, My grandfather's a pretty quiet guy in the sense that Coaching was maybe not the greatest thing for him, but he ended up coaching Geelong the following year after he retired, um, only for seven games. Only for seven games, he didn't like it down there. Yeah, he was, was not like a fan that. of it. He didn't like. He didn't like the way it was run back then. Um, but he, co- yeah. but he went on to coach other teams and and the like. And so many of those yeah. Collingwood players who played under McHale end up becoming coaches across Australia. And you know, um, the book that I've got over there, The Australian Game of Football, Jock writes a book about coaching with all these strategies in it. 1931, amazing. Um, to actually do that. So, yeah, I, I think it was success, the fact that he, was, he had all that success yeah. and the fact that he couldn't be pushed out. That was the thing with Jock. He was a pretty obstinate sort of person and he didn't want to change. He he had three things in his life, footy, the brewery and his family. And, uh, yeah, I think I think there was too much pressure to get rid of him, put it that way. Yeah, fair enough. And I've, I, I found it really interesting before when you
3: mentioned that he hated the nickname The Machine. I thought mm. that was fascinating because... And yeah. I, I kind of understand it when he when said that as well, because he was a very, like, he may have had his systems, but he was also very flexible and he changed things up during yep. the game. He wasn't sort of a set play coach. Like, it wasn't just set and leave. He, he moved things around all the
2: time. So I, I, I can see why, you know, he, he didn't want to go yep. anywhere. <laughs> no, exactly. And, I mean, you just got to look at it. Um, players who played... You know, um, Jack Regan was a forward for a period of time and little things like that. Like, he he didn't like it because he felt like it, it took away from his coaching that we were just this systems team that, um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, that's an interesting thing with coaches and I always love looking at coaches. There are system coaches and there are sort of gimmick coaches as well. Often the system coaches are great, uh, but Jock felt like he was tagged too much of, a, of as a systematic coach, um, whereas he liked to change things. Like, we came across one thing one time where – for a period of time at Victoria Park, there was a line drawn down the oval, through the middle of the oval, which is the corridor, just reminding players to play through the corridor as much as you can. Just little bizarre things like that. Um, but then as he got older, he was less prepared to take risks and, and to change things. And I think that was, in the end, part of the problem with Collingwood. Yeah.
3: So I guess, I mean, the other thing, and you, and you did mention this earlier as well, is that he's sort of yeah. known as as the as a ghost, and that's yeah. the, the only way we see him is yeah in the photos, of the hat. We sort of just know him as this very stoic sort of uh, um, hard man. Um, through this, through the research you've done and speaking to family, have you found out much about his persona away from football? Was he a different person away from football than he was around
2: the club? Uh, it's a really good question because it, it was really hard to put any, as I say, sinew on the bones because um, you know he certainly he. He tolerated the media. He did a few things. I obviously wrote the book um, and, and tolerated the media, but he didn't give a lot of himself. He was a very private person in a lot of ways, which is bizarre. You think Kevin Sheedy and Mick moldhouse you know everything there is to know about them pretty much, whereas Jock liked to keep things pretty private. The thing that probably got to me was the family heartache and the family tragedies yeah. that he sort of endured, both, both as a kid growing up and losing, I think it was, you know, at least three or four of his siblings, Um, you know back then it was an awful time but then he has three children and one of them dies as a five-year-old in 1919 um, the year of his second premiership the one that sort of got me was the death of his daughter uh, from viral meningitis as a 17 year old in 1934 he still fronted to training a couple of days after that which you think is quite extraordinary I was able to come across a letter um, that was written to him by someone at the club uh, and talking about, you know, the stoicism of the Irish and how they just get on with um, living life through, you know, really hard scenarios. And, and speaking to his um, daughter-in-law, he wore a black tie to the funeral and wore a black tie thereafter, only wore a black tie. Didn't want to wear a coloured tie. And every Sunday he would go to the cemetery um, uh, to, his, to his children's grave uh, and would always do that. So he'd have the footy on the Saturday. Sunday would be, I'm going to go to the cemetery. He would do that. Um, he obviously never drove, which is quite amazing. So his son would drive him around a lot. Um, so I think that personal side to it uh, was the thing that really got to me because he was masking a lot of pain Yeah. Um, because um, a lot of people said that uh, he never got over his daughter and he never did. He never really got over his daughter dying. Um, and as much as that probably showed the real man as well in a lot of ways that he, he was heartbroken with that and yet he still continued to coach for another 15 years, Yeah, and which is extraordinary. And um, just internalised it all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, wouldn't have known any difference in the sense that uh, he mourned her um, publicly for a period, but he mourned her privately for the rest of his life. And and so much so that his grave now he shares a grave with his wife um, and his two children that died before him, that predeceased him. They're in the same grave, uh, which I've been out to her several times, um, and it's quite moving that they're all together. Yeah. Uh, they're all together, uh, you know, forever exactly in a sense. Yeah, wow. um-
0: yeah, that's incredible. So we know that the AFL now hand out the Jock McHale medal uh, for the premiership coach, and they backdated that to 1950, which is really nice. Um, yep. What do you think is the uh, is Jock's legacy for both the league and Collingwood?
2: Yeah, it's. I, I love that. I, I think something needed to be done for Jock, because back in the old days, he wasn't even a life member of the AFL, because back then, coaches were not made life members, yeah, which is bizarre. is bizarre. It got changed. Fortunately, got changed. Extraordinary. So it fortunately got changed. Um, so I, I think what he means to Collingwood, he is Collingwood's, you know, if you think of Collingwood, you think of one man in, in terms of its history, the longevity, he was the biggest name in footy in a lot of ways through the first 50 years of the competition. Um, so he set up a lot of the traditions at Collingwood. And I think that, to me, is, is the legacy that he has there. Um, without without him, how many premierships do they win? How much tradition is, you know, he didn't found the tradition, but he maintained the tradition through that. So. You know, as far as things such, as, I think the Jock McHale medal is fantastic. I think the one that got me was when Luke Beveridge got the Jock McHale medal, Um, even though he he handed it over, obviously, briefly to, um, you know, to the great man Bob Murphy. But the connection between (laughs) Luke Beveridge, and I know this means a lot to Luke, I'll always remember uh, after Hawthorne was beaten by uh, the Bulldogs in 2016 in that semi-final, being in the rooms, and... Luke Beveridge was pretty emotional anyway, uh, and I'd written a story on his father's connection to the four-in-a-row, uh, and to stop have, have him, you know, stopping the four-in-a-row effectively. Yeah. Um, I had a tear in my eye yeah. in the rooms. We both looked at each other, and we both thought about our grandfathers and preserving. To me, it's important the preserving the preservation. It sounds ridiculous, but the preservation of that famous record and yeah. the fact that Luke Beveridge was a man to do it. It's quite. Remarkable, really, in a lot of ways. But I know it means a lot to him, and I tell you, it meant a lot to her, our family. And, and the families are the people of the machine. It sounds bad because history is great, and you want to see it continue on. But uh, the yeah. machine's pretty special to me. Yeah, absolutely, and it, yeah, that continuation and connection with the past. But that that he's the man to
3: do
0: yep. it. That Collingwood connection absolutely. It wasn't them. It was yeah, it's it's nice. Absolutely. And um, annoying, no doubt at all. Annoyingly, for other supporters like Charlie and I, Collingwood have this ability to. Creep into the finals all the time, and and somehow, like, not necessarily win grand finals, but they make a lot of grand finals, and I feel like that's a leftover legacy from Jock. They just got this innate ability to to play well in finals.
2: Yeah, they they do sometimes, not always great in grand finals, but certainly in um in finals, it's been that's the tradition at Collingwood. It was always you don't you know you don't think you want to have a good year. You want to play finals every year. It's you play finals, and that was the. That was the belief at Collingwood all through Jock's year. He wouldn't have gone into one year thinking we're not going to play finals. Yeah, and, and they do. And that was, you know, I don't think Jock would have gone into many seasons where he was the ever the optimist in terms of he was probably ever the, you know, the pessimist in some ways of his life. But um, given what he'd gone through, but he, each year brought something new. He expected to play finals every year. He expected to win a premiership every year, <laughs> even through the war when they had, um, you know, most of their players were off at war and they were really struggling. I think they... The one thing is Melbourne. Melbourne really copped it in that um, Second World War, but they were able to keep, you know, the premiership teams going. And, and but Collingwood couldn't do it. They lost players yep. to the war, but you know, obviously couldn't win games.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of the uh, the the machine four, as well as a Melbourne supporter, it kills me that you got us yep. in '58 and we couldn't we couldn't <laughs> <have> you there.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it would too. And, and I still see. Every now and again, I speak to the great Ron Barassi. I was really lucky enough to do a, a book with him in 2008, roughly 2008, um, of his scrapbooks, putting them together. And um, he he still to this day is filthy. That he doesn't doesn't matter that they won 59 and 60 no. and then 64 and <laughs> caused more heartache. Um, he that's 59 and 58, and it is probably if you look back, it is the the greatest upset. I mean, there's been some amazing upsets in grand finals, but I can't think of too many more than that particular. You know, day. Um, um, it's extraordinary. It was, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it
3: breaks my heart. <laughs> but no, it was phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> and but that's the, you know, that's the, that's the great thing about this game is, you know, that I mean, the fact that it yeah. was Collingwood that. Beaten Melbourne to stop them getting the four is just absolutely no, it's, it's it's
2: quite amazing. And the pressure, the pressure that Fons Klein was under that week was extraordinary as well. Someone gave him a, a little, it's not, wouldn't be politically correct to do it now, or um, but he gave him a kangaroo paw as a good luck charm. Oh, yeah, uh, and he was destroyed in the rooms leading into that game, thinking, What are we going to do? Oh. How am I going to handle um, handing over? Not that he played in the in the four in a row, but he knew what it meant, having been yeah. trained by Jock McHale. Um, uh, yeah, it's that grand final, if I could pick other than the grand finals that my grandfather played in, that's probably the day I'd like to go. Even though you get a bit wet, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Hey, Glenn, um, in, uh, in 2012, you wrote a uh, an article comparing Jock McHale and Nathan Buckley. Uh, ooh, looking back yes. on that now, eight years later, can you still see comparisons?
2: Definitely. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I can. You remember when Bucks did on, on that ad, I'm, I'm not sure it was an AFL ad, where he said, so help me Jock. Um, which was a great line. And um, yeah. I think Nathan has been, you know, he's been an extraordinary figure. He hasn't had the success that Jock has, has uh, certainly had as a, as a coach. Um, he almost did for, for one year, but um, there's, there's that connection that he's decided to stay around this footy club as Jock did, um, had many opportunities to leave as Jock did. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I love the fact that they almost played exactly the same amount of games, um, uh, you know, for they were completely different players. i um, Jock would have killed for Nathan Buckley's skills and his prowess, but um, it is just an interesting sort of connection that you know players that stay around footy clubs for a long period of time and then they go on to coach them. Um, not many, not many players who are you know superstars of their team end up yeah. getting the chance to coach their own team. So no. um, there's similarities. I wish there was the same amount of premierships on the <laughs> on the ledger. That would be nice. Yeah, there's yeah. time, maybe. Yeah,
0: Charlie, did you it. want to talk about the uh, the coach of the century?
3: Yes, yes, because I find I, – so this is fascinating to me, and I'd love to hear your opinion then, because I, I spoke to Michael about this when we interviewed him. Yeah. Um, and w- so what's – I did listen to it. I yeah, so what? Sorry. I mean, what's your what's your
2: opinion on it? Why do you think they gave it to Norm over Jock? Um, it's, it, yeah, I, 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 you know which way I would have voted. <laughs> and I, I'm a massive Norm Smith fan. I'm an absolute massive Norm Smith fan. What they did that Melbourne Footy Club was extraordinary – um, but I, I would certainly, absolutely no doubt, would, would have voted for Jock. I think Jock deserved it, more premierships. People say, oh, yeah, but he didn't coach them in the 1930 grand final. He was home oh, ill in bed. Yeah. But, he coached them in the I, 1930 I grand final. He <laughs> coached them. You know, he, he knew what was going on. He was listening on the radio. He didn't have a mobile phone, but he briefed them. Um, I, I look at the selection committee, and, and I've got no problem with the selection committee. They're outstanding people, but their memory, a lot of their memories – were, as you were talking about before, yeah. 1950s, 1960s, and sometimes 1970s. So I think it becomes, I, I'm still astounded that Jock McHale wasn't coach of the team of the century. Um, um, uh, yeah, I, I still find that, I'm just as astounded that Jack Regan wasn't the full-back of the or, team of I the mean, century. That's, I know that sounds... Yeah. That's probably the, um, yeah. That I think I think the on-field stuff is probably even more,
3: there's yeah. a conjecture with that because you look Absolutely. at some of those college yeah. games that should be in that side. When you think of it as a team of the century, yeah. I mean, the, the difference between those two coaches, Jock and Norm, is there's not much you know you can, uh, minuscule, minuscule but on on field. Yeah, there, there
2: is there were some big yeah. mistakes. Yeah, well, not mistakes. I shouldn't say that. Uh, well, it's subjective. Yeah, it's subjective in a lot of ways. But the the fullback one, I um, it still gets me, and I know that it still gets Collingwood in a way. What it did do was create a lot of controversy, yeah. And it created Collingwood's team of the century in in the year after. Not Eddie went. That was it. The, no, it wasn't the year after. Yeah, it was the year after. I think it was. It wasn't Eddie. Wasn't president then, but <laughs> I think they released their team in '97 or '98. I think it was '97. Um, and you know they were able to, do a, able to do their own team. Every team, every club's got their own controversies. Like the the Collingwood team of the century. Lou Richards didn't get yeah. in, And he walked out on the night. Like he and, and you know he, in a sense he should not have been in. They made the right call in That sense, no doubt whatsoever, but he was that upset. He walked away on the night, he, he thought he was going to be in. Um, I'm not sure I, he wouldn't have got in in my team of the century, but that the, the you know, the, the full back role, I cannot believe it. I still to this day sit back and think, How did they make that? Dec- <clears throat> excuse me, I still think, How did they make that decision? It was the wrong decision, <clears throat> excuse me, the, yeah, the, it was just um, the wrong decision, I thought, and that's not, not taking nothing yeah, away from Stephen Silvani, right. um, but. You know, to have the man,
0: yeah.
2: You know, Jack Regan was the prince of fullbacks, just as you know, Jock McHale was known as for a time the king of coaches or the prince of coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's just, um, yeah. You, look, I think that that's a really good point you
3: make, and and that we we've, we've all made is that it's the forefront of your mind is the one that happened more recently. And yeah, yeah. And you know, yep. I think I said this to Michael at the time. I think in in that sense, maybe the the fact if he if he quit coaching in nineteen forty, as you mentioned, Glenn, I reckon it's yep. probably he, he's sewn up. But it's those extra. Time I think you're for right. Premiership, yeah.
2: That kind of yeah. maybe change, change. I think movement. you're probably right. And as you say, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you when you say that it's minuscule. I, seriously, you're quibbling when they're two, the most two remarkable coaches you would ever get. So you are quibbling, um, <laughs> but I, you know which way I went gone. <laughs> yeah. And I'm happy they went the way they did. So <laughs> yeah, of course, and, and and it's good. And that was the only thing about the book. And I've got the book here. Um, the story of Colin, and this, I didn't have any say in this. The the book was called Jock, um, the story of Jock McHale, Collingwood's greatest coach. Yeah, I wanted to say football's greatest coach, but the publisher said so we can't say that because he's not the coach of the team of the century. <laughs> and he had a good point about yeah. that. But anyway, not that I'm bitter. <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Glenn, thank you so much for talking to us. Before we uh, before we let you go, are there any other books in the works? I
2: haven't at this stage. I've There's a few little ideas. I've got some ideas, um, but nothing... At this stage, the last one I did, I, I got sort of burnt out a bit with books. There are quite a few that I've done with Michael. We had a busy period where we did um, Collingwood's best 125 players, um, champions of Collingwood, which took a bit of time. And I did a war book, um, a book called The Fair Incomes, which was following uh, a, a group of men, including my great uncle who uh, enlisted, it's called The Fair Incomes, um, uh, who enlisted after um, the landing at Gallipoli. So they sort of enlisted around June, July, sort of 1915. So that took up a bit. I did Sam Mitchell's book at the time, Sort of, so I've been I'm been on a bit of, of a sabbatical, but I've got about five or six ideas. I've just got to get one that works. So yeah, fingers yeah. crossed down the track.
0: Um, and we've loved the Sacked podcast. Is, for, well, firstly, was that inspired by stories of Jock McHale and all that sort of stuff?
2: Uh, it was an interesting one. Thank you for your kind words on that. It's been really good fun to do because I love talking to people about footy um, and their own stories. And um, it was in a lot of ways we thought about the Norm Smith scenario, the great sacking of, you know, the ridiculous sacking of Norm Smith and, I think everyone loves a sacking, um, unless yeah. you're the person being sacked. Um, and I think what yeah. is missing sometimes is the story behind the story of those sackings. And that's what we wanted to. John Ralph and I were trying to come. Everyone we're trying to come up with some ideas. And everyone's got a, a podcast, and you need a point of difference. And so we were able to get that little bit of point of difference. <laughs> yeah. And heaven not been only in our first year. Yeah. I think there were so many sackings in our first year last season um, that it actually it actually got people. And so the numbers were phenomenal. We were really lucky <laughs> yeah. and. And won a couple of awards, which we never thought. We were just two guys just trying to trying to do something that would work. And the people we got to speak in that first series were great. And then we've expanded it in the second series to to players as well. And and, and we're actually hopefully gonna have another series pretty soon, um, leading into the finals of of six guys that that are part coaches, part players and and it's got a bit of a life of its own. It's gone oh, really yeah. well and we couldn't be more pleased with uh, the trust that some of these people are putting up. It's, it, yeah, yeah course,
3: I, I just, I love, I've loved listening to it. It's, it's phenomenal. Thank
2: yeah. you. Wouldn't you love to do one with Norm Smith? It, we sort of did. Yeah, no, yeah Tony Charlton yeah. sort of did. Yeah,
3: yeah, it? yeah. Oh my God, what an episode of television that was. But um, there, <laughs> yeah, those inside stories of, you know, because you see the <laughs> press conferences and you're like, I wonder what's really going yeah. on behind the scenes. So it's so lovely to to
2: hear it what what they were really thinking at the time it's it's, it's fascinating yeah. yeah it's good and so we hope um we don't want too many people to get sucked but we'd love for <laughs> to continue on for a few more years because we just love being able to tell footy history and hopefully it's getting to people and i know that mark williams he was a little bit reluctant to do it at first mark williams um because he didn't want to bag too many people and i don't think he did he did it in a really good strategic way um but he then said i'm so glad we did this it's a record there for our kids yeah. and that made us feel great thinking that, you know, we don't do it particularly for anything like that, but to help yeah. people out to tell their stories um, and for us, we're fascinated by it all and John does a great job and, um, yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's got a little bit more life left in it. Oh, well, for, I don't mean, from from my side, I, I could listen
3: to it forever, so I hope you keep, you keep <laughs> on going.
2: Thank you very much for that.
0: Awesome. So we are, uh, we hopefully we're going to end this episode, Charlie, with uh, a Jock McHale song.
2: Oh, yeah, we've got to figure that out. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Have
1: you heard of Jock McHale? We boys, the pride of Collingwood. He's been here for 40 years and done a lot of good. He's the finest coach we've ever had, the best we've ever seen. And he did originate the Collingwood machine. Oh, he taught them how to kick and how to punch the ball. Turning on a tray in the center of the ground. There's been no history in the history of the league. With football so consistently, opponents did confound. Oh, he won the side ten premierships, a record of the pass. He saw we were the magpie when he turned up and lost. Well served in the hall of football fame he'll never be reserved. reserved. When Jock came to Collingwood fifty years ago, he couldn't even make the side, I'd like you all to know. When he went, to went into the in his first year in the side, he ran rings round McGregor, McGregor and that. left him in his stride. Picnic dashing around the barrels in his knee-length shorts of black. black. Those old pants are part of his first uniform. It's said that Old Woolie's always asking for them back. He'll always be remembered while the magpies have their roost. He always seems to be around to give the side a boost. There's nothing more to say of him, so lift your glass of ale. And join in wishing all the best to dear old Jock McHale. Yeah, there's nothing more to say of him, so lift your glass of ale. And join him wishing all the best to dear old
2: Jock McHale. To find out more about
3: the kick to kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kick2kickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under... Have kick you kick. heard of Jock that's
1: McHale? We so. boys, the pride of Collingwood. He's been here for 40 years and done a lot of good. He's the finest coach we've ever had, the best we've ever seen. And he did originate the Collingwood machine. Oh, we taught them how to...